Part seventeen of Washington and the Riddle of Peace by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Ebb tide at Washington. Washington, November twenty-eight. The League of Nations was the first American initiative toward an organized world peace. Its beginning, the worldwide enthusiasm evoked by its early promise, its struggle to exist, its abandonment by America, its blunders and omissions, and the useful, incomplete body that now represents it at Geneva, are the material of an immense conflicting literature. For a time, at least, the League is in the background. It has not kept hold of the popular imagination of the world. I will not touch here upon the mistakes and disputes, the possible arrogance, the possible jealousies, the inadvisable compromises, the unnecessary concessions that made the League a lesser thing than it promised to be. I will not discuss why so entirely American a project, into which many nations came mainly to please America, failed to retain the official support of the American government. Of such things the historian or the novelist may write, but not the journalist. The fact remains that the project was a project noble and hopeful in its beginnings, a very great thing indeed in human history, a dawn in the darkness of international conflict and competition, an adventure which threw a halo of greatness about the nation that produced it, and about that splendid and yet so humanly limited man who has been chiefly identified with its promise and its partial failure. It was, I insist, very largely an American idea, and only America, because of her freedom from the complex and bitter-spirited traditions of the European foreign offices, could have brought such a proposal into the arena of practical politics. The American nation is exceptionally free from ancient traditions of empire, ascendancy, expansion, glory, and the like. It is haunted by a dream, an obstinate recurring dream, of a whole world organized for peace. It comes back to that with a notable persistence. The League of Nations stands now, as it were, on the shelf, an experiment not wholly satisfactory, not wholly a failure, destined for searching reconsideration at no distant date. Meanwhile, the American mind, with much freshness and boldness, has produced this second experiment, in a widely different direction, the first Washington Conference for the Limitation of Armaments. The League of Nations was too definite and cramped in its constitution, too wide in its powers. It was a premature super-state. One standard objection, and a very reasonable one, was that America might be outvoted by quite minor powers, and be obliged to undertake responsibilities for which it had no taste. The second experiment, therefore, has been tried, very properly, with the loosest of constitutions, and the most severely defined and limited of aims. We are beginning to see that it, too, is an experiment, likely to be successful within its limits, but again not wholly satisfactory. Instead of a world constitution, we have had a world conversation. That conversation has passed from the open sessions of the conference to the two committees of five, upon the limitation of land and sea armaments and the Pacific Committee of Nine. In all these committees there are wide fluctuations of thought and temper. There are daily communications to the press from this committee or that, from this delegation or that, 
from a score of propagandas. It is really not worth the while of the ordinary citizen to follow these squabbles and flights and recriminations and excitements. Certain broad principles have been established. The ordinary citizen will be advised to hold firmly to these and see that he gets them carried through. And now there has been a decided ebb in the high spirit of the conference. These disputes about details have produced a considerable amount of fatigue. Attention is fatigued, and the exploit of M. Briand has for a time shattered and confused the general mentality. The American public was in a state of pure and simple enthusiasm for peace and disarmament, and quite unprepared for the exploit of M. Briand. Like all serious shocks, it did not at first produce its full result. The mood was so amiable here, so eager for cheering an emotional human brotherhood, that when France, in the person of M. Briand, snapped her fingers at the mere idea of disarmament, and quoted a twenty-year-old passage from a dead German field-marshal to justify a vast army and an aggressive naval programme in the face of an exhausted Europe, there was a touching disposition on the part of a considerable section of the American press, to greet this display as in some way conducive to our millennial efforts. Only a few of us called a spade a spade right away, and declined to pretend that the irony and the restrained indignation of Mr. Balfour and Signor Chanzer were endorsements of M. Briand's stupendous claim that France with her submarines and Senegalese might do as she pleased in Europe. The facts that the caustic and restrained utterances of these gentlemen could be so construed, and that the London Daily Mail should attempt to break and mutilate my comments on the French attitude, demonstrate beyond doubt the need there was for the utmost outspokenness in this matter. But the situation is now better realized. The air is already clearer for the outburst. France, we realize, has to stop bullying Germany and threatening Italy. Europe can only be saved by the honest and unreserved cooperation of Italy, France and Britain for mutual aid and reassurance. The repercussions of the Franco-British class was immediately evident upon the other issues of the conference. The practical refusal of France to join in the generous renunciations of America and Britain, the feeling of insecurity created in Western Europe, weakened Britain in her ability to work with America on the Pacific for a secure China and for restraint upon the possible imperialism of Japan. Britain cannot do that, with a hostile neighbor behind her and an uncertain America at her side, and the prospects of a free China and for an effective limitation of the Japanese naval strength were greatly imperiled. Japanese demands stiffened. Ten to six, said America, ten to seven, answered Japan. The effect upon what I might call the Washington state of mind throughout the world was depressing. The easy onrush of the opening days was checked. Here was hard work ahead, complications, the traditions and mental habits of two great European peoples were in conflict and had somewhat to be adjusted if we were to get on. The Anglo-French Entente, we discovered, was in a very unsatisfactory state. It had suddenly to be sent to the wash, and the washing had to be done in public, and this happened at a phase of lassitude. In the ebb of the great enthusiasm, all sorts of buried rocks and shoals became apparent again. 
party politics reappeared and remained showing i am an innocent child in american politics i know that i make my artless remarks upon these things at considerable peril but i gather from the self-betrayals of one or two influential people that things are somewhat in this frame the democrats feel that they so far have been almost supernaturally good about the conference they haven't said a word by way of criticism they have hailed and helped and smiled and cheered still if things should so turn out that a kind of insufficiency should appear and if people's minds should revert thereupon toward the democratic league of nations idea so much under a cloud at present it would be rather more than human not to feel a faint gleam of pleasure and perhaps even to give the gentlest of pushes to the process of disillusionment and on the other hand there betrays itself now and then a slight nervous eagerness on the part of loyal rather than good republicans to call anything that happens a success and to become indignant when as in the case of the Briand oration a spade is called a spade and that childish undignified and dwindling tendency of certain american types to regard all foreign powers in general and britain in particular as forever engaged in diabolical machinations against the peace and purity of american life is also increasingly evident there is an open if incoherent press campaign against disarmament against the british against foreigners generally against any troublesome thing you like these are ebb-tide phenomena these are the limitations of our poor humanity under fatigue none the less matters have to be thrashed out and will be thrashed out as i said in the beginning it is hard to keep hold and so it was high time that the president who embodies so much of the simplicity and strength of that real america in which i am a profound and obstinate believer should come back into the limelight from which he receded after delivering his great speech and leaving the chair on the opening day of the conference in the indirect way customary with presidents here he has been making some very important pronouncements my friend mr michelson some days ago published a sketch of very important proposals that had already received wide support in the informal discussions that pervade washington for partial rescinding of the allied debts subject to disarmament conditions to be considered by a second conference to be presently assembled following on this news the president has been talking for publication of a third experiment in the form of a second washington conference to take up these issues and he has also been talking of a third conference to confirm and go on with the disarmament arrangements a conference at which germany and the spanish-speaking powers if not russia are apparently to have a voice such a periodic repetition of the conference would presently organize itself for a continuing life and so develop gradually and naturally into the association of nations we are all seeking these are refreshing promises on these days of ebb they show that the impulse that began so splendidly two weeks ago is not dead that the tide rises toward world discussion and world-organized peace will flow again presently wider and stronger than its previous flow and meanwhile these frank discussions of attitude and detail must go on they cannot be ignored but at the same time they must not be magnified into incurable quarrels and insurmountable difficulties 
they are unavoidable and necessary things but not the big things the main things while the tide is out our main projects stranded in this estuary that leads perhaps to the ocean of peace must needs keel over and look askew we must scrape our keels caulk leaks and wait for the great waters to return end of part seventeen